Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I'm holding in my hand a book by Luke Burgess that's called Wanting. The Power of Mimetic Desire in Every, Everyday Life, and a uh, very interesting book. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, why he wrote it and what it's about. So, Luke, thanks for coming. Hey, Rich. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and what was your inspiration to write the book, and then you know we'll get into what it's about. I'm an entrepreneur by, by experience, I guess you should say, not by uh, education. I worked on Wall Street for a short period of time and uh, left to go to California and enter the startup world. And I spent most of my 20s there, founded four companies and had some success, had some failure. But I've always been a very curious entrepreneur. I, I read like crazy, not just business stuff, classic literature, philosophy, theology, you name it. I've always kind of reached beyond and been interested in ideas and one of the thinkers that captured my imagination more than any other was a French academic named René Girard, uh, who also happened to be the mentor of co-founder of PayPal, Peter Thiel, while he was at Stanford. And uh, his ideas have sort of been circulating in Silicon Valley for a very long time. I actually didn't learn about René Girard from anybody in the startup world or in Silicon Valley. Uh, I learned about him from a priest, believe it or not. And, and so Girard's well, it was it was a lot less cool when I realized that everybody in the valley had already known who this guy was. But Gerard's ideas explained a lot of my own experience in life as an entrepreneur, as somebody who kind of felt whiplash in terms of my goals and my lifestyle and what I wanted. I would want one thing one day and then the next I'd kind of lose passion and then take a different direction. And Gerard's main idea, his big idea was the concept of mimetic desire, the, the idea that human beings 
don't desire totally spontaneously and independently, but that we desire by finding models, people around us and imitating the desires of other people, usually without knowing it. So I, I stumbled on Girard's thinking. That's just the, the entry point into his thought. He, he has a lot of implications of this to, for human conflict and violence. But that one particular insight opened my eyes to a lot of the forces that were driving me in my life that I, I wasn't privy to before I read Girard. Well, I guess maybe you just gave an example of one. Like you said, you felt, I don't know, I guess maybe embarrassed or like, oh, how come I didn't know about uh, about Gerard and everyone else in Silicon Valley did? So that maybe gave you a mimetic desire to learn more about him. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is a long time ago. This is right around the time when Twitter just launched. And we kind of live in that that world now, right? Where it's like, there's, a, there's elements of FOMO, not just with experiences and activities, but also with knowledge you know, like people are looking to see if anybody else has said something and, and, you know, thinkers come and go just like fashion trends and ideas come and go. And Gerard's insight really explains a lot of this. Well, now that you're aware of it, what started changing in your life? What did you notice or what, how did this benefit you knowing this? It gave me an awareness to not necessarily take all of my desires for granted, first of all. And I began to shed this hyper-individualistic, um, probably prideful idea of my own desires, that that I know what I want and that I've arrived at these goals and, and my ideas and my lifestyle totally independently. So I kind of take a step back and I've created some distance where I can examine my desires. I can ask some questions about them, think about the origin of them, where they came from, what I'm really looking for. And that's an important question. I think early in my startup days, you know, I would have told you like, you know, I want to be, I want to, I want to change the world, but like, what does that even mean? I mean, it's just abstract as everybody does in a, in a sense, everybody wants to do something positive. I mean, I would say these things, but deep down, I, I sort of like deeply wanted to have a certain kind of, I guess I wanted to be known, uh, you know, as this innovator or this certain kind of an entrepreneur and have this financial freedom, a bunch of things where once I, once I achieve some of them, I realized that they had left me very empty and that the model of an entrepreneur, like this, you know, platonic form of what it means to be an entrepreneur that had been held up to me was dr driving my decision making. And never had I once stepped back and thought seriously about, well, where do I want to be when I'm, you know, 40 years old? And I'm coming up on that now. I, I just had never asked that question. I think we can just get like caught up in the day to day, week to week stuff and, uh, and not think about where our desires are necessarily leading us. So, you know, in society, there's, I mean, there are a lot of paths we could follow. You know, there's like the starving artist, there's the, you know, successful entrepreneur, there's uh, the person that I guess leads a spiritual life and renounces like all earthly possessions. What does it do to people where in like, at least in their group, in their circumstance, you know, the ideal is to be, uh, let's say, a hard driving entrepreneur that never sleeps and, you know, makes millions and builds a unicorn and stuff like that. Um, Versus being in another setting where, you know, the drive is completely different. Uh, just, you know, get a good education, go work for a company and, and just have like a regular life and, you know, regular house and stuff like that. Like, you know, how, how much are people influenced by the people around them and what they're told to aspire to? We all exist in systems of desire. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is to just make us a little bit more aware of the systems of desire that we exist in. So sure, there's the hard driving, you know, ambitious driver, you know, 
work 80 hours a week and become a millionaire as soon as you can. That's one system of desire. And I, we just have to recognize that's a system of desire. I mean, there are other totally separate ones. You know, monks, people that live a monastic life, there's a system of desire, a very intentional one, in fact, you know, guided by, by like the rule of Benedict. Um, and that's a system of desire too. So, you know, these things are not good or bad, just knowing that we're a part of one, that there's an order to desires and it's largely determined uh, the influence or the, the the ways in which we move and the kind of goals that are made desirable to us are are influenced by that system that we're in. I think our the education system in the United States is another one. You know, we've had certain goals for a long period of time and nobody has really stopped to question them until very recently. So that's just one way to look at it, knowing that, and we move in and out of different ones. We have a family system of desire too. And as we grow, we adopt others and, and we come into contact with them, often without even knowing it could be in our industry, uh, could be in our city. And becoming aware of that and, and the way that it's affecting us can help us set better goals. Uh, it can help us develop some self-possession where we can realize, you know, like I'm kind of going after this thing because I, I'm, you know, everybody's telling me that it's the, the thing that I should want without having really, you know, taken the time to, to examine that. So mimetic desire is not a bad thing, you know, that we can certainly use it in, in, in positive ways, right? When we're surrounded by people with virtues or with, with lifestyles and love and friends, things that we want. I mean, those can affect us in very positive ways. So in one sense, sometimes we can, we can exit a system of desire that is making us miserable. Uh, and then we can sort of, you know, be pulled into another one and, and surround ourselves with people that also affect us, but in ways that we've sort of accepted with some agency and said, yes, this is, this is the one that I want to be in. Well, what happens if you're part of an ecosystem? Let's say you're a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, but yet you're very religious and everyone else around you like makes fun of that. And they're like, that's ridiculous. And you know, what, what happens to you internally? Like part of you is pulled in one direction, but another part of you rejects that life. And it, it's, yeah, it's who you are, but you know, like do you get all twisted up or what happens to you? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. That's a great example because I am one of those guys. I, I was a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who was religious and still am. And you know, I had a, that process for me. I had to work out in real time. And it's part of where this book comes from. So yeah, there's this crazy internal tension. I think everybody feels it at, at some level and it, it's, it's working that out. So one of the, one of the ways I tried to work that out was basically just leaving that world completely. I moved to Italy for three years. I practically lived like a monk, you know, and I figured out a lot of the stuff that was going on. And, and then I was able to sort of re-enter the world, so to speak, re-enter, you know, the, the, the world of startups. I moved back to Las Vegas, Nevada, where I was before I left and was able to do it in a way where I, I was able to sort of in, live a more integrated life. So it's not one or the other. 
I think we all sort of like live with the tension. Part of it for me was I was an entrepreneur and not the, there was no model of entrepreneurship that was perfect for me. No one person ever, ever is. So for instance, I was looking for models of, let's just say holiness. I was looking for certain virtues. Couldn't find them embodied in anybody that was in the ecosystem that I lived in. So I found them outside of the ecosystem, people that weren't entrepreneurs at all. And I became friends with them and I talked to them and I was mentored by them. And what ended up happening is that I sort of, I, I pieced together relationships. So the, I, I think the relationships is what mimetic desire is all about because the idea is that desire is, is relational in this very deep sense. Uh, and, I, and my models came from different places. So I, I reached outside the boundaries of the ecosystem I was in. I found some models that were outside of it. And then I had a decision to make like, well, Luke, what are you going to do? You're going to have one foot here and one foot in the other place. How do you do that? this. And then I realized like part of my calling was, no, you've got to figure this out. You've got to figure out a different way to be an entrepreneur that's true to your values. Maybe nobody's quite done it this way before. In fact, probably nobody's done it this way before, but that's kind of the beauty and the excitement of shaping a different kind of career and, you know, making it kind of an amalgamation, this kind of like a beautiful tapestry of different influences that might go beyond the kind of ecosystem that, that you're in. It's weird, you know, so you're saying people, I guess, have a drive to mimic and then I guess therefore conform, but they have elements within them that may be different and individualistic. But you mentioned also being hyper individualistic and then also being, I'm mentioning being conformist. So I don't know, how do you float between those two things? Like, have you observed yourself becoming more individualistic and then less and more, you know, or in certain situations, you're very individualistic and other ones, you're very... uh, conformist, like what happens to you mentally as you navigate all this stuff? I think there is a kind of a spectrum. And, you know, as we go through life, different seasons of life, you know, obviously when we're kids, when we're babies and adolescents, we're just imitating like crazy, you know, a lot of times without even knowing it. You know, I think that one of the things I've realized is that imitation and innovation are not two totally separate things. You know, innovation often comes out of imitation. And the same is kind of true with identity. So we we have models of desire, we have influences in our life, and they do shape us. And at the same time, like our, our like an, a unique individual self emerges from from that. So it's it, for me, it's a both and. And there's something to be said about just being aware of of, of that. Like I I do have. I mean, every person becomes sort of this very unique and unrepeatable life by the end of their life. It's why, you know, in, in funerals, we give eulogies, you know, everybody is born in certain time and place with certain circumstances and, you know, have certain relationships and jobs and our lives are, that'll never happen again, you know? So we are individuals and unique and, and we live these unrepeatable lives at the same time. They're, they're shaped by all kinds of things and there's an interplay and in a way it's very beautiful. I think the trick is to not just become merely kind of a, a you know, product of your age and, and, and being able to recognize, yeah, like when, when is my identity? When is, when are my choices being driven completely by fear, completely by mimesis? Um, how much agency do I have? And there's, there's a dance. I, I do think that there's a dance involved in the people that we end up becoming at the end. So what, what's the goal of your book is, I guess, to make people aware of this, but then what do they do with it? You know, okay, I'm aware. Wonderful. Do I use it if I have a lot of cognitive dissonance in my life and this will help ease it? Like, how do I put your book to work to help myself? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
I think the book um, works at a couple of different levels. One is the societal and cultural level. So the book deals with one of the implications of Gerard's ideas is that mimetic desire often leads to conflict, even to violence, not just depression and misery. If, if you're sort of, you know, being driven completely by mimetic desire, but even conflict in the societal level, because it eventually leads to rivalry. So one of the goals, one of the reasons I wrote the book is actually so that we can begin to have a cultural conversation about rivalries and, and the mimetic forces that are shaping everything from, you know, politics to the stock market. And being able to see that, being able to see when there's mimetic things happening uh, can allow us to extract ourselves from them a little bit, you know, to, to, to pull back. And Gerard talks about the scapegoat mechanism and, and mimetic desire is, is one of the reasons why we engage in the transference blame. But that's it's more than we have time to get into on, in, on this podcast, I think. But so there's there's that there's like, how can we build a better a better culture, a better world by becoming aware of our the kind of human tendency to to be rivalrous because of these forces that drive us? Oh, I was just going to say, like, I, I guess it makes sense. You know, once you're part of a tribe and your identity is wrapped up in that tribe, you're aspiring to get ahead in it. Any other outside influences or other tribes you would see as conflict and against you, you would want to protect your group and its interests because you've you've uh, spent time and energy and effort trying to be a part of that group. So I guess that would make it, I guess that would be a source of conflict. Exactly, exactly. So okay. m- m- mimesis is a real source of, of, of tribalism and conflict because we're, we have certain models that we imitate. And when one comes sort of outside that, that shared group identity, it's viewed as a threat. So as, as you get into the second part of the book, um, this becomes really important. So that's, that's, I think it has a lot to say about polarization and, and division in, in our, in our country right now. Individual level, you know, there is, it's about self-discovery and, and awareness. Uh, and freedom. And, you know, it's funny how many people have read the book and reached out to me saying that they saw the mimesis in their relationships, even with their loved ones or their, or their spouse. So it was kind of a surprise to me. I, you know, I, some people think this is a, about business or it's a business book. And I do come from a business background, but the vast majority of people that I've heard from so far are not from that world at all. They've just said, yeah, you know, I actually, I actually see this in my relationship, in my workplace. And I see how like my husband and I, or my wife and I, for instance, can begin, we like, we both seek respect and, and sort of a certain amount of just something that we're both looking for. And we end up competing with each other for that very thing. And this is a product of mimetic desire. And the more that the other kind of, you know, wants it and competes with, the more it kind of reinforces the, this kind of weird competition and rivalry and, and one-upping each other and can lead to some bad things. So people have like, are making these connections, which I think is really, really cool. So what's some feedback you, I mean, I know the book literally just came out, what, June 1st, but I'm sure you had advanced copies to maybe friends and associates. So have you gotten any feedback that surprised you or delighted you? Like any examples? That's one of them, you know, just the amount of people that see this on the micro level, that see it in their relationships that are able to relate to the stories in the book, even though a lot of them are about about business people. It's been cool to see people making making the connections to their everyday lives. One that has surprised me. I think one of the things that that is that I wanted the most and and you know some of the feedback that I've got is there's a whole chapter in the book dedicated to the scapegoat mechanism. And you know it's the tendency of of people to you know to transfer blame. 
And this is related very much to mimetic desire because the scapegoat mechanism is, is the way that humans kind of like bind together uh, against some, some other. So a whole chapter in the book dedicated to that. And I've had several people actually tell me that they've had, they've, they've realized that they, they were scapegoating somebody or, or something or some group and were able to see for the first time that they were caught up in some mob mentality and hadn't actually like, had the self-possession to step back and separate themselves and just look at the person as a person or have a conversation that they need to have. And that to me is the most important thing. If, if one person does that, I mean, this whole, this whole project would have been worth it. You know, it's weird. I, I realized, um, you know, let's say I live in uh, Chicago, you know, on the West side, I'm part of the United States. I'm a citizen of the United States. So that's one tribe. I'm also in the state of Illinois, which is like another tribe. I'm also living in Chicago, which is another tribe. And then I'm also living in this particular neighborhood, which is yet another one. I have a family, which is another one. I work somewhere, which is another one. So at a, I mean, in anyone's life, I would think there's four or five, six, maybe eight different tribes that really majorly possibly influence them. Do people even have a sense of this and how do they juggle it? And what happens when one or more of them come into conflict in a really you know, head on way? What do you do? You know, it's true. We are part of these kind of like interlocking and intersexual, intersectional tribes. I've found the um, kind of the positive connotations around tribe building, to be honest with you, a little weird. I, I, I'm always a little skeptical of that. I, I see like courses that like find your tribe, you know, build a tribe. And I've never quite under, understood that because in, in many respects, there's, there's, you know, tri tribes can be limiting and they can impose constraints and they, they can, you know, confine us to ideologies and things like that. So, you know, we're tribal creatures. We still are, even we don't always think of ourselves in that way. At the same time, there's some ambiguity to, to that. And we have to recognize that, you know, finding a, a, a tribe has throughout history provided a lot of advantages to, to human beings. But it seems like now what a tribe is and what it means is a little different, especially in the digital world that we're all part of, especially with social media. And defining ourselves in that way brings with it some real dangers, you know, including scapegoating those that are not on the inside of it. And, you know, in different tribes come into conflict, conflict with one another. I, I think that we frankly need like a detribalization period. So I'm kind of anti, you know, the, the notion of tribe. It's not that my, my, my family, I guess you could call my family a tribe. Um, but even in that case, I mean, it's not that I, I won't protect my family, but I still want my family to be like open, you know, like I want anybody to be welcome in the home. And I think we just have to define like, well, what is it, what does it mean? What are the limits of, of, of each of these kind of systems that we're, that we're a part of? And how can we prevent it from closing our minds, closing our hearts to whether to, you know, to people, to ideas? And that's, you know, that's a challenge. Yeah, I guess last thing I thought of is, um, you know, now when I think about after looking at your book, I think about, let's say, Congress. And I think, well, they're their own tribe. That may not be good because they're, they're supposed to be looking out for everyone else's interest. But given that they're, let's say, a member of Congress and they have their own tribe, that it's worrisome because you would think, oh, they're obviously going to look out for their own political class, let's say, their own other members. How could they look out for people that are literally are strangers to them, but they're supposed to represent? I mean, I live in Washington, D.C. I'm, I'm talking to you right now from the middle of, of D.C. You know, and it's funny, I... I you know, we, we don't have representation here. And I, I, there's politicians that are quite literally a mile and a half down the street from 
you know, where I'm talking to you, where I'm sitting right now that are in Congress. And, uh, you know, I, sometimes I wonder how often they've, they've just walked down the street in my neighborhood and, and just seen some of the stuff going on. So I, I think, you know, it's gotta be encounters, you know, human encounters and, uh, you know, feet, feet on the ground, I think would go a really long ways to, you know, to, to reducing kind of the tribal, I think you're right. And, uh, and I think the only solution for that is to get, you know, I think small is beautiful many times. And uh, I, I, I believe in local politics. I think it's really important, um, but also just to, to actually, our Congress people need to have real human contact with the people that they're representing. They can't just stay, stay in the chamber the whole time. Well, very good. Well, what's the best way for people to learn more from you? I mean, the book I would think is what, Amazon and Kindle? I don't know if you've done an Audible version. Where can people go to find out more? Yeah, so the book is available everywhere online and hopefully in your local independent bookstore, which I love. There's an Audible version of the book. Uh, I read the first part of it, the introduction, and then a pro took over. And if you're interested in just learning more about mimetic desire in general, there was a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the book. And I've... I uh, read a Substack called Anti-Mimetic, where I publish uh, at least weekly. And uh, it's kind of a nice little intro to the book if you're not ready for the for the full 280 pages at this point. Well, very cool. Well, Luke, it was really great to speak to you. I love your your interesting perspectives. And I guess I get a, you know, I just have to think about uh, all the stuff in this book and what it means and see how it, it changes my perception. And I hope listeners will too. So, so thank you for coming. I appreciate it, Rich. Thanks so much for having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.